Yeah. Like, how cute do we really need to be? <laughs> I can't help it, Nathan. <laughs> this is just as cute as I am. It's one of the things I appreciate about you. The fact that I'm not very cute? That you're very cute. Aw. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Nathan, what are we going to talk about on the show today? This time on the Design Games Podcast, we're going to talk about universality in game design and designing your game to be hacked, changed, and modified by other people. What's the difference between designing a quote-unquote universal game versus designing a game explicitly or perhaps implicitly to be hacked and modified or created at the table? Is there a difference? Oh, there's definitely a difference. I just don't agree with the premise. And That's well, a wobbly axis then, then, to me. Then question my premise, I will. my friend. Get ready. I think those are the two bundles, though, that, that are involved in this idea of designing for modification. I think so. I, that's the thing to me. Those are two different axes. That's the X and the Y, not, not two ends of the X. Let, okay. me, let me reframe, for example. So one of them is universal system, okay, mm-hmm. sound. The other end of that axis is a game designed to do one thing. That it, for example, a universal system is a physics engine, and as an example. Sure. And the game designed to do one thing is, is my life with Master. Okay. Okay. But you, can, you could probably get even narrower than that. Mm-hmm. But let's just say, a game that is specifically about okay. the tale of a hench person's relationship with their villainous Master. Yeah. Okay, a very particular thing. Mm-hmm. The other axis there was a thing that is designed to be hacked and drifted at the table versus one that is designed to be static to me is the thing. The thing that do not hack this. Do not mm. mess with it. Okay. Now, My Life with Master is far down the x-axis at My Life with Master's end. It does this one thing really, really well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's off-center a little bit in the sense that you can hack it, but it's not going to do what it does better. And so you're just going to be turning into a different game. So I don't know if that puts us north or south of that sure, axis, sure. but it makes it... So that you don't necessarily, I don't know of a lot of hacks, for example, of My Life with Master, mm-hmm. other than the little choices that you make during play, which we can, which we assign to the there's, game itself. Right. Or there's like reskins, yeah. where it's reframing the fictional context, but yeah. it still uses the same game, like uh, My Life with Santa, where right. the oh, master totally is Santa, and you play all the like the elves, the elves and reindeer and stuff. And stuff. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. That's great. So to me, those those are the axes that come into play in this conversation. Is there's, Because, for example, GURPS is a system that says it can do anything. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe universal systems exist because outside of physics engines. I think the Havoc physics engine in video games is close to universal system in that it will make crates behave like crates. Well, so here's <laughs> here's where I see these things being less of orthogonal axes and more of a, a horseshoe, okay, if you will. And I think GURPS is probably the best example because yeah. I know it. I've played a bunch of it. So that's something I can actually talk about. GURPS says it's universal, right? That kind of as a... Mm, Marketing is not even the right term, but just kind of as I, I think it's I think it's the most it has only one or two siblings that are that are even warrant being able to strut that way. Sure. And I think it earned it. But yeah, uh, yeah, where I see these things being in the same realm of discussion is that when you set up a GURPS game, you have to make a bunch of decisions about what to include. Uh, and a lot of the time those are before you start. Right. But it's like we're playing GURPS. We're doing a urban fantasy modern game. Right. So we're going to be using these sets of rules for these things. Here's magic. And I also want psychic stuff. So here's psychic stuff. And I also want talking to the underworld stuff. So here's that. But there's no fantasy races. So we're not using any of that. And I don't care about combat very much, but you do. So you're in charge of all the complicated combat rules. But if you're not in the fight, we're just using 
the basic combat rules like right and this is all stuff that has been how games of this i've played have have gone sure and it's modular yeah you're, you're picking the parts so you're and, picking yeah. the parts and whether that's a the the gm is deciding that this is the game i'm going to run or if it's like a round table discussion of what do we want to do what what rules do we want to include yeah. what are we comfortable using both of those models work for making those decisions but then once you start play you pretty much use the rules that you've already decided the modules that you're going to plug together to to run mm-hmm I think that's only dissimilar in time, but not necessarily right. in substance from a game where when you start the game, part of the game is deciding what to include or hacking it as you go, or like an apocalypse world, creating custom moves to cover new things that have come up that are not cr- covered by the basic moves mm-hmm. uh, as an ongoing process. Does that make sense? It does. I guess to me, the question I have is, is the making of the campaign in GURPS, all deciding all those parts, is that play? Is it meta play? Is it actually, mm-hmm. I mean, when hacking takes place to me is very, very important to how we frame it and also how we support it in play, like as a game. Because I'm, and to me, time then is the Z-axis. And I sure. hate to keep adding axes. GURPS does all that modularity or can, let's say, do all that modularity beforehand. You can you could, you could add in modules halfway through and say, oh, it turns out there are dragons in the setting if you wanted to. Right. But, yeah. but yeah. it's kind of a functionally, it's often set up before you start. Right. You kind of make the, the broad stroke decisions about what you're going to be using in the game. Right. And then you go. And, and part of why I object to the notion of, or why I'm nitpicking the objection mm-hmm. of, of GURPS as truly universal is that pre-GURPS, the GURPS that you play before you actually start the campaign mm-hmm. is very nearly universal because you have all these different modules, all these different components, all these different parts that you can strap together. Once you've done that, it is clearly no longer universal. Mm-hmm. You've said we do not have dragons, but we have elves. We do not have spaceships, but we have laser guns or whatever, right? You've built a specific setting that will adhere to the physics of GURPS, right. which is to say, what are the odds that I will miss with this laser gun? As opposed to what are the odds that I will miss with this laser gun in, in D20 versus the I've, odds that I will miss with this laser gun in Apocalypse World? So I think GURPS uses, and I think that the general use of the term universal has a little bit of historical baggage context to it, yeah. where it's kind of like universal in the sense of resolution and in the sense of modeling things that happen. But I don't know if you've ever heard this, but the uh, the idea of, you know, GURPS is a universal role-playing game, but Primetime Adventures is the universal role-playing game of Television. feelings of feelings sure sure yes and and of television but right, um, right. but I, I get it yeah. but in terms of the content of play a game of primetime adventures kind of can model pretty much any dramatic emotional interaction thank you sure. yes yeah yeah any dramatic emotional interaction regardless of fictional content while a game of GURPS can model pretty much any kind of skill-based or like physics-y resolution of does if 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 this character does this, what happens? Right. Does it succeed or fail, regardless of fictional content? The the point to me that's different is that, one, is that I still don't agree that, that, that that's true for either one of those games. I, I don't think, think it's like 100% sure. yeah, universally I'm, true, but... I'm cutting very, very thin here sure. on purpose. But is that, part of that is also because, to me, there is the aspect that both games are still making assertions. They are stating things about how things are in worlds in which these games right. are king. Yeah. 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 And that, to I me, agree is... With you on that. To me, that is orthogonal to whether or not we will change it during play or sure. before play. Because, yeah. to me, the question is, if I agree completely with Pride Time Adventures in the way that it models emotional interactions... And it's doing exactly what I wanted, and I never hack it. Mm-hmm. That is not a feature of its universality. That is a feature of its agreement with me. Hmm. Okay. Sure. I don't find universal to be uniting, which is what's interesting to me. When you say hmm. uniting, I'm like, well, that's absolutely what, what Primetime Adventures and GURPS do. They get everybody to agree that this is how 
this is how feelings and firearms are going to work <laughs> in this game. <laughs> but that's not what Universal is. And the example to me is because the universe is not uniting. <laughs> May I demonstrate, for example, the, the best example I can give you is the world. Sure, yeah. Um, but so, uh, uh, to me, a universal system is one that is designed to create a universe. That <laughs> is designed to be a place that is universally consistent. That follows the same rules. But anytime you attempt to model any of that outside of the sciences, and even then I get a little iffy. And that's true in systems too. In game mechanics, you have a situation where, look, nobody could survive that fall. But we've clearly alluded to Butch and Sundance so much that we've decided that we're not going to roll the players. are just going to each be reduced to one hit point and they're going to survive the fall. Mm. The What you're choosing to be con- to be internally consistent. Yeah. Right. I think that's a strong... But even the fact that, that, that. There's, that there's a hit point, the fact that there is health or damage or whatever, these systems are present, the games are still making assertions about, oh, for yeah. example, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prime Time Adventures is American dramatic television mm-hmm. wonderfully. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do like Korean dramedy real well, which is the thing I've been sure. watching somewhat online, right? They, they follow different rules, mm-hmm. which is fine and is, and is not a mark against either one of them. Mm. But Prime Time Adventures or GURPS are smaller than they appear because they each project a world in which their tropes are factual. Mm-hmm. This is how it works. Sure. And that means that they are essentially creating genre. Mm-hmm. And genre is not universal. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a genre. There's mm-hmm. no genre that's universal. Mm-hmm. So I don't disagree with any of that. So I think maybe we can cap, cap this off with, with the note just about uh, your game is not going to do everything, right? Like even if it is a system designed to be broadly internally consistent along certain axes, those axes, you still need to decide what they are how they work and how intense they yeah, go in each direction yeah. and 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 be kind of intentional about what genres you're going to end up supporting or creating intentionally or otherwise right that's the big thing to me is is that notion which is i think really important is understanding mm-hmm. if you have a system that is really let's say quote unquote realistic or really or really a great simulation of a genre and or any of these different categories mm-hmm. you are encouraging and discouraging certain kinds of behavior right. i would never do what john mcclain does in die hard in <laughs> real life i do it all the time in games yeah because games have different consequences mm-hmm. if i jump off a building yeah and this is the kind of thing where you hear people say like you can do any kind of pulp adventure with a, with savage worlds right right Savage World is great at pulp adventure, all kinds of subgenres of pulp adventure, not so great at maybe Korean dramedy. <laughs> right. Right. Or qu- uh, or questioning what pulp adventure is. Sure. It's not great at that. Even though it's a, it's a system that has a very broad applicability to lots of different yeah. forms of adventure game, the farther you get away from that kind of core family of genres, mm-hmm. the less it may serve you. And that's going to be true of pretty much any game. But I think there's two kind of related issues. One is if you are setting out to design a universal game, you you still need to decide what that game's about, right? Your universal game about what? Your universal game that does, like, what does the universal mean? Does that mean genre? Does that mean fictional kind of stuff? Does it enclose? Does that mean resolution? Like a unified conflict resolution system is universal in that way. Any conflict can be resolved by... A PTA card draw is just about defining hmm. what those conflicts are, right? Like, which ones are important? Which ones do you actually draw cards for? Like, that's still a decision you need to make as a designer. Sure. So there's that bundle of things. And then, then the other one is designing a game that is about and includes the ability of the table to create their specific instance of the game. Right. Right. Yeah, there's still yeah. a universality to that where there's some kind of starting point that you are then 
giving them tools to interesting build. I agree. I would have phrased it from the other direction. That second group, I would have phrased it from the other direction, which is to say that rather than it being the starting point that makes it universal, mm. it's the fact that from wherever they come from, they arrive, they enter the same arena, they enter the same creative space. Sure. So it is encompassing rather than it being emanating, if that yeah. makes sense. But yes. I think the, the result is essentially the same. I mean, I think it hooks into a metaphor we've used about the sandbox and looking to, towards the center. Yeah. You're still creating a bunch of elements in the sandbox or creating the bounds of what the game is going to include. Right. How, how do you get everyone building playing their together. own? Yeah, playing together, but also like, what's the difference between giving everyone the big castle mold so that everyone makes a castle? Right. Or giving everyone the brick different... Molds. Yeah, brick molds, and then they build whatever they want. Yeah. This is true for so many RPGs, but Savage Rolls is a great example for this. The way that you know that you're getting into the weeds is that it starts feeling different. It starts pacing different. It starts, as opposed to just, oh, everybody's dead now. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. What did I do? Which it can happen, for example, in a D&D game where you bring in even a monster of the wrong level or mismatch the challenge ratings, and then the dice don't behave, and then you go, oh, well, the campaign's over. <laughs> and part of that is designing systems that you have in place and language to help people understand so they can communicate, I've made this monster two levels higher as opposed to, I know he's tougher. I don't know how much tougher, Mm -hmm. right? And so giving names to some of these things is part of what I think is important. I think there is kind of a demonstrable effect of mechanics complexity, right? We have fewer moving parts. It's easier to tell when things are going awry sooner, uh, generally speaking. And Savage Worlds, for example, doesn't have a whole lot of moving parts. So, you know, you, you can tell pretty quickly once you start changing things how it's going to end up impacting play. This is, a, again, splitting into two, two issues. One is cool. people modifying your game to make a different but related game out of it. Right. And a group playing your game and modifying it as they play. The only thing I would point out is that the second one can turn into the first one intentionally or otherwise. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. Where part of it is where you're like, no, we, we've, we've, hacked, we've hacked Savage Worlds or Powered by the Apocalypse mm-hmm. or whatever to add a new move. Mm-hmm. And, but we're not changing the genre or anything. And then right. a couple of sessions later, you discover, well, we added another move. And now we're kind of changing the genre a little right. bit. We're kind of making a whole other game. We didn't really think about mm-hmm. it. Wasn't, it wasn't our design to right. do that. Or like but, you're doing yeah. something in a game. And then once you finish playing, you're like, oh, we, we did all this cool stuff. And that has now inspired me to right. do the, we go off into space, apocalypse world, we escape escape the apocalypse world, right? right? Uh, because that was kind of the thrust of our game, and we came up with some cool moves about like getting to a launch pad or something like that, lifting off without destroying everything below us, and like, oh, there's a whole game there. I think that's kind of a natural path of inspiration yeah. uh, when you play a lot of games, when you end up bumping up against the edges of something and go... Oh, I see over there yeah. another way this game could work. I can climb this fence. Yeah. Let's see what let's see what's on the other side of this fence. I'm not sure that I use these terms correctly. The difference between hacking and drifting. I'm very, I think, lackadaisical with the way I use them. Do you know rigid or less rigid definition that you use in terms of the... Because to me, that's almost what you're Mm -hmm. describing, is that hacking is when you're changing it, and drifting is when you're still sort of within the original game's space. Yeah. There was... So Drift had a, you know, had had kind of a jargon meeting at the Forge, which I think is actually pretty close to what you think it would mean. We're playing a game, and... When we do this thing, it doesn't really match up with what we want, so we just start doing it differently. And then as just we go... Just by a matter of degrees, Just right? a matter of degrees. Yeah. Maybe intentionally, maybe maybe it just happens, and then we just absorb it, and then we forget that we changed it. It yeah. doesn't really matter, but the drift implies away and towards, right? Yeah. So drift is away from either how it works, like as written, or away from its intent, and towards a way of working that is more in tune with our group. And you can end up drifting rules such that the game 
collapses, right? Like you drift something too far and then you're like, oh, wait, Knock this doesn't leg and yeah, and this doesn't work anymore. We never thought about this thing that we didn't get to until three sessions in. And since we've been doing this differently, it doesn't work. So that's kind of the, the negative why you wouldn't want to drift because maybe you don't know the game very well. Right. And, or why you want to just check yourself when you're sure, doing sure. it. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. But it's also kind of a, I think, a natural and expected thing. Uh, I mm-hmm. think in play, people drift all the time. You know, they change things just to make it work with their group better. And that's fine. I don't think there's any reason to impugn anyone for doing that. I think there's a lot of conversations about hacking and what exactly is a hack and what isn't and what's a hack or a reskin or stuff like that. To me, it's mostly just about intentionality. And like if you are setting out on a project to take a thing and turn it into another thing, Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably hacking it. If you want to preserve the identity of that thing in your new thing, you probably refer to your new thing as a hack of the old thing. Right. right. Like right. this is my apocalypse world hack. You're preserving the idea for other people that yeah. it's rooted in apocalypse world, but it's different. If you say this is my game, it happens to be powered by the apocalypse. That's a positioning it in a different way. Yeah. But I think that's more about communication. Using that word in that way is more about communication to your audience and less about the activity. It's interesting. Because to me, I guess the drift was the two and away from the center line of the game. Hmm. And that you can turn it into a hack by, in part, like you say, the intentionality is when you get to the edge of the game and decide to keep going. Right. <laughs> well, now you need ground to stand on. So you're building new ground and you're hacking out a, yeah. a, an addition. I mean, I think, out a wall and building on an addition or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I think they, there's overlap, right? Like yeah. you can at some point be like, oh, we've drifted the game into this direction. Right. Now let's intentionally reframe right. Right. some other things so that it all still works for us. Oh, now I see a new game over the fence. When you look at what games drift versus what games get hacked and expanded on and modded, we'll see a lot of repeating similarities about how those games label and make interactive their atomic structure, like the difference between the castle mold and the brick mold. Powered by the Apocalypse games are very sturdily atomic. You can build a move to get to a specific launch pad, Mm -hmm. and the game not only has room for that, but you'll know pretty well how to build that one move Mm -hmm. and you're not going to have to blow out a wall to do it. Right. And very often sometimes games that are called elegant and often are elegant, but are harder to do this with in some cases because you're like, if I move this stud, if I move this wall, is the whole place going to come down? Yeah. And it's hard sometimes to tell until you give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Part of that is the economy of moving parts. Right. I think I had a discussion once about the Mountain Witch and we were talking about opposition dice. So like Mm -hmm. each Ronin player, you know, is going to roll a D6 and then the the GM is going to roll some number of D6 in opposition, and you're looking for the highest number among them. And the way that I understood how the rules worked, you know, the the GM's generally not rolling that many more. And then the understanding of this other person was basically giving the GM, like, way more dice in Mm. similar conflicts. And I was pushing back on it because, A, I just thought that we were interpreting a, a slightly unclear passage a little differently. But also, B, that, like, in my play experience, if I was rolling that many dice... That would have completely changed how hard it was for the players. And there's a kind of a fine balance of difficulty. So I was like, if I'm rolling all these dice, I would have been just like kicking their asses the entire game. And that doesn't seem, A, that doesn't seem fun. And B, that doesn't seem to be the intent of the game. So I, I feel pretty confident that the way that I'm doing it is right. And this kind of minor change about rolling kind of two or three more dice in some circumstances right, right. would really impact the flow of the game. And there's not many more rules than that. That's pretty much 
it. Right. So now, and th- that's a great example too of of how you can show the same game if you were to build it in a way that was designed to be modded to put mm-hmm. sprues on it so that other things can hook into it. For example, imagine that different things happen on specific values on the die, not the highest number, but imagine if it's this happens on a three, this happens on a four, this happens on a five, this happens on a six, which is totally different math, but you've created now a lot more points of contact, a lot more moving parts, a lot more mm-hmm. gears on the cog, a lot more teeth on the cog, so that the game has more places, more things to swap out. Mm-hmm. Now, the game might behave almost exactly the same, except that it's just telling you, look, not only did you not get the highest, but you got a three, and that means this. Yeah. It could just be more information. Mm-hmm. But as people start to build out on it, what we might find is that, and I don't know if this is true in this case, but for example, we might find that as people attach new subsystems to each of those values, right. that the whole thing just becomes more load-bearing than fun. It just becomes more mm-hmm. heavy than it is fun. Yeah. It's distracting from the fiction, and it's distracting from the trust mechanics and everything else the game is about. Mm-hmm. It's not like those dice on the, uh, those numbers on the D6 go away. The D6 is still a D6. But what we choose to give names to, for my, for, for me, for a long time, it was give a name to everything so that you can refer to it precisely so mm-hmm. that people can pull on that thread so you can indicate like part B and slot A in an IKEA sure. instruction manual. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've, I've had a little bit more a feeling of not just be careful, but to sometimes lay off mm-hmm. and say, yeah, so there are skills and there are feats, but I don't need 10 categories of feats. Yeah. I just say feats or mm-hmm. I just say skills. I don't need three categories of skills, although I tend to do that anyway. But Because I still always will have to, at least two categories, skills as a whole and the individual skills, mm-hmm. right? So also don't undermine or don't don't miss out on the fact that you have given names and well, categorized stuff that you may not think of as being discrete mm-hmm. may come across as discrete to somebody else. So I think this idea of handles, right? Yeah. Like you're kind of putting a handle on certain things yeah. by naming it or categorizing it. And I, I do that because that is something that is going to plug into another part of the game. Right. Right. So like if I have a set of skills and they're mental, physical, and social skills. Sure. Right. Maybe I've placed them in those categories just for brainstorming or or whatever. And then I have them and I list them out and they're in those three categories. If nothing else in the game refers to those categories, if they're just on the character sheet in those three chunks with those little titles right. and that's it, my inclination would be, as you say, to get rid of the categories and just have them be skills. Right. 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 But if there's something in the game that says when you're using your mental skills, right. here's this um, fatigue currency that you end up gaining over time because there's only so much. Because of how many hours you've been awake. Right. Yeah, Exactly. In that case, then there's value to having the mental skills. So then is there also value in having those other two categories still exist? Are there other things that they hook into? Right. Or then is it just mental skills and everything else? Can skills be in more than one category? These right. kind of questions. Yeah. Then is it a tag? Is it a mental skill and a social skill? Right. Yeah. And then like everything with the mental tag works this way and everything with the social tag gets this currency. And then this one skill does both, like all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's as kind of like as the designer approaching the game, trying to make it elegant and make it uh, not have too much extraneous stuff and have what's on the sheet matter. But another way to approach that is have those those three categories exist. Maybe only mental skills go to fatigue and the other two are just in those other two categories. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you've actually kind of put a handle on those right. and said like, hey, if you're going to make your own insomniac firefighter firefighters, <laughs> your own insomniacs under pressure game. Right. See how mental skills work in Insomniac fighter pilots. That's a model for using these other skills, and they're already in categories for you. All you have to do is come up with the cool, fun rule that Mm -hmm. you want to add in and hook into those handles. So there's an opportunity there. If your project is to make something that is extensible and has opportunities for other people to hack it, you might want to put some of those things that, to your core game, are a little extraneous, but are a very clear path for other people to 
play with. The handle suggests that beyond that, it, it's a sign when you're looking at a game that is completely presented and all closed up and neat and tidy, mm-hmm. that there is a container there, there's a drawer there, a box there, something, and, and that it's movable. That's why it has a handle, right? And so that you're saying, look, I've put all this stuff in this drawer. But that also suggests you could add stuff to this drawer or you could take stuff out of this drawer. Mm-hmm. And you have a container. What happens if you take the silverware drawer out and the, the junk drawer out and you put them in different spots? Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of things. They help people move stuff around. So I think this kind of handle idea is essentially how Apocalypse World works, right? Like there's all these different elements of the game that are kind of called out, broken out into different categories. Right. And Vincent spends text in the game talking about here's how to make a new version of this. Right. Right. Do you feel like this is a similar thing to, say, a fiasco? Or do you think that's a slightly different approach? Because building a playset in fiasco is less about here's all the categories, go ahead and change them, and more about here's the categories you need for this game to be fiasco. Now fill them with your own content. Right. Well, I'm stunned to this day that we have not seen, and I've tried to do it and didn't get it done, a place that changes the relationships, needs, and objects into three other things. Because what we do mm-hmm. in that game is, when you look at how everything is labeled and contained in fiasco, it is absolutely done in the same kind of model, which is, look, so making a place that's easy, you just fill in these lines, we've made these easy containers. The places are designed to, to be very discrete little compartments to fill up. Everything in that game is essentially fungible for the purposes of creating a similar experience. Uh, and you see people do it with things like, who do you play? What are the relationships? Uh, you could imagine imagine that your early playsets didn't change the six categories of relationships. They used all the ones from one of the, from small town mm-hmm. and just changed the specifics. You could do that. That's an option. Mm-hmm. Or you can change the specifics and the big categories. But I've almost never seen anybody change the top tier, which are needs, relationships, and objects, the actual elements themselves. Uh, th- there was, I think, a motivation. There was a little bit of talk, I feel like, in, in the books about changing the, a- the aftermath table or the tilt table. Mm-hmm. People don't do that very often. It happens, but not with the same frequency. I'd be very curious, I don't know how you would study this, but to find out where those sort of invisible barriers are mm-hmm. in actual math, like how many playsets change the tilt table and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Which ones seem fungible and which ones seem immovable? They almost, uh, Jason and, and Steve essentially did this with the high school, the gentler fiasco. Yeah, the the soft tilt yeah. table, yeah, yeah, like the John Hughes Yeah, right, version. and that takes it where it's still fiasco-y. I mean, it's still bad, but it's not... R-rated bad, right? <laughs> in the sense of what's going to happen. Like you could see someone doing like a uh, grindhouse tilt table, right? Where things yeah. get like real bad or we, real like gross. I, or whatever. I have. I was going to see print in one of the magazines that never did. I have a tilt table for all the damn time. The the time travel playset mm-hmm. where everybody plays the same character. There exists a tilt table specifically for that set that is unique tilts that are go from prosaic to gonzo within the tilt table again. And it was not any harder to do than the rest of the playset, really, mm-hmm. in part because the playset is very specific. I think that's easier to do the playsets than it is the tilt tables, but mm-hmm. still. But imagine if you change the aftermath table, you can make the game not fiasco anymore. Mm-hmm. If you change the aftermath so that, no, these dice are really good and these dice are really bad and these dice mean you find love and these dice mean you don't mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Um, and then change what happens at each of those numbers and suddenly it's not a matter of do you accrue bigger numbers. It could be a matter of what kind of dice you accrue and stuff. Right. Well, and then in that case, are you getting away from fiasco, right? Yeah, like, and then And then yeah. you're, you're getting more into hack territory where you're like, I'm going to change right. this aspect of the game to make it a different game. In, in part because the all the containers of Fiasco, and this is, a, this is an important thing, is that all of the containers in Fiasco are analog. Mm. Their handles are essentially digital in the sense that there are six 
mm-hmm. numbers and that each one is one number wide. Like imagine if you ask a playset where one through three on this die are all the same thing, mm-hmm. right? That's a digital change. Sure, sure, yeah. But the analog thing is that, no, as long as the number of outcomes is the same, the number of things in the, in the, in the aftermath table is the same, mm-hmm. so the math holds up. You're just cosmetically, you're changing, or only changing fiction. And that, yeah. and that shows how much fiction affects play. Mm-hmm. Imagine then for Powered by the Apocalypse, building a move is essentially changing what happens in the three outcomes mm-hmm. and making those exciting and fun and, and fun to play with. Yeah. But if you had a move where there were four outcomes, mm-hmm. if you change, if that adds an out- outcome category of mm-hmm. seven to eight or something like that. Or assigns every number an outcome. Assigns every number an outcome. Yeah, exactly. Even changing the outcomes is bigger than a skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an analog change. That's changing the fiction inside those three outcomes. Mm-hmm. What what does a middle outcome look like for this situation? Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you're changing the paradigm from failure, mixed success, full success, potentially like extra good if you're using the 12 plus stuff. Right. If you change the paradigm from that to every number has an outcome, every number from <laughs> 2 to 12 right. has an outcome, you know, and they're ranged by, by likelihood of the bell curve. They're not ranged by success right. level. That's a different framework for gameplay. Right. That that move is then pushing play into. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of zoom in and out, right, Mm -hmm. of the mechanical framework and choose at which level you want to start changing things for whatever your desired outcomes are. If it's for just at the table for your game or if you're venturing into a new design and you're starting from the chassis of something else, you need to choose what you think is already serving your goals and then kind of cut in at whatever level is right under that Mm. or over that, I guess, depending on which way you want to see the metaphor, as to what needs to change to match the new things that you want to do. And similarly to how we were saying that genre and gameplay work, what you choose to name and how you talk about it is going to affect not so much whether or not it's hacked. You kind of don't have control over that, but whether or not it is easy to hack and how that hack relates to you. So, for example, if somebody said the fact that Apocalypse World has a name and Powered by the Apocalypse has a name, although I don't care for the name Powered by the Apocalypse, but I love the space that it occupies, which is that it creates that thing, which is, no, you could say this is a hack of Apocalypse World, which suggests it is very close to Apocalypse World, or just that it is powered by the Apocalypse. So that there's still a bridge, there's still a, a you know, a skyway connecting mm-hmm. them, but that they can be dif- they can be further apart, or they can be very different looking buildings and that kind of thing, which is great. And his intentionality on Vincent Baker's part, showing what he's comfortable with or willing to have people do later that will relate to his work in this case. But so for example, if you say, if your game has three tiers of resolution and you name all three of them, well, you've created seams. I might be able to tear off one of them and play mm-hmm. a game that is just two of them now. But if you don't give a name to certain things to the kind of lowest secret tier, sure, you might be suggesting intentionally or otherwise, mm-hmm. leave, this this one, leave this alone. It doesn't, yeah. I'm, I'm not encouraging people to mess with it. I'm not, I have, I put no warranty on what happens when you pull the batteries out. So if you want to design a game that includes within it the, ability for GMs and players and other designers to hack it, to drift it, to change it. You just try to make it like Apocalypse World and make these kind of atomic sets of things or like at a larger scale or like GURPS, I suppose. But like, how do you feel like that design goal occupies the landscape of design goals? Like, is that enough? Like, I want to make a game that other people are going to use to make their own games. Oh, oh, I see. No, I don't think it is. I, I'm surprised how easily I can answer that. Mm-hmm. Because to me, the thing is that if that is the design goal, then the design goal is being willfully or or unwillingly obtuse or ignorant or whatever about the fact that your game is going to make statements about 
physics of the of the world that you're representing or genre of the world that you're mm -hmm. representing anyway. The notion of being able to create a game that is all this is is a toolkit for making an RPG. That might be possible, but I'm not sure that would be a game. Sure. Yeah, I see. Um, once you make a game out of it, it is making statements that means that there are things within it and things outside of it and things have to be moved, might have to be moved in from outside or pushed outside from the inside to change it, these sorts of things. The idea that you can make a game that does everything and therefore is eminently hackable on the inside because you've labeled everything just perfectly and you've got the seams in the right places and that that is all that it does, mm -hmm. as I think folly, because it's still as a game is going to be making choices about die size, about what you name things, about how many ability scores there are, mm -hmm. all that stuff. I think in this does get a little bit back to the universality discussion yeah. about how once you start making design decisions, you start making statements about what the game is about and creating the space for the players to make their own statements about what their instance of play yeah. is about. Yeah. I agree that I that I think it's a weak position to start from. I'm going to make the new hackable hotness. I've seen people try to do that, and I feel like I haven't seen very many successful versions where that's the selling point, right? Right. TSR tried it a couple of times back in the day. They had a thing in the 90s with uh, the Amazing Engine tried to oh, do right. it, mm -hmm. and Alternity essentially emerged from the kind of the next level more focused and right. still, still didn't quite do it. I think what I see more often is that you have perhaps an idea for a game framework that could be very hackable, but then you need to make a game with it. Yeah. Right. And in so doing, you make a rad game and then perhaps that original goal kind of fades away or it just stands alone as its own thing. Maybe it has that ability to then be, be reinterpreted. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a hard, it's a hard sell for that to be the yeah. reason you sit down to play the game. Imagine a game that is designed to be hackable but it's also such a strong game that nobody, I don't say bothers, but people are either intimidated to hack it or they go, no, that game is so, well, Fiasco is almost sort of yeah, doing it, Yeah, I was going right? to say Fiasco seems to be in that category. Yeah, like, so so smartly what it is mm -hmm. that it's not, people we, just, don't, we still play within it rather than. Yeah, people don't seem to have the desire to yeah. to to change it. Or if they do, I haven't seen that. Not, yeah, not to change it so much that it literally becomes a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. They're still kind of playing within the scope of Fiasco, I think, mm -hmm. which is not bad. Right, that's certainly a success. But if, if for example, Jason Morningstar had set out to design Fiasco to start a hack revolution, mm -hmm. that goal may not have been met. <laughs> right. So he's merely going to have to content himself with having made a brilliant, potentially timeless ironclad game with a great legacy. Very sad for him. <laughs> Very sad for him. So I'm looking at what people are doing with D and D five, which I I think is great. I, I love that game. But is uh, contrary to maybe every previous edition of D&D, there's not a big need to write a lot of new spells hmm. because the spells scale, not just by level, but it's like, hey, so this is a fourth level spell that deals damage of this die type, so this is what it should look like. Mm -hmm. So you can cosmetically change them, which I think is great because there's a lot of room in D&D 5 spells for what we would call cosmetic changes, but are fictional changes mm -hmm. to how the spell looks. And some people want that permission and they want to have those ideas mm -hmm. and that's great. But when it comes to actual untilled ground, there actually isn't a lot because the the dice combinations by level, as they're limited by level, and there's a guideline that says that this level you should a spell should deal about this much damage. To stay within those guidelines, it's like a fourth of the book or a fifth of the book back there is all spells, does that. Mm -hmm. It has almost all the spells present. And mm -hmm. there's lots of neat little things that don't do damage or don't interact mechanically that way that you can come up with that are be very specific. But they're sometimes, I think, going to be so specific that they're going to be of no use to somebody. But that kind of campaign level hacking and mm -hmm. drifting, the, that's kind of the entry level for a lot of designers. And I think happily so, where you say, well, I'm, I wrote a bunch of spells for my campaign because it gives it this vibe. Awesome. Great. Yeah. yeah. Take them to the DM Guild, see if you can make some money or whatever, right? Get rewarded for that work you did. But some people are going to be like, I don't, it's the same, it's Magic Missile with a different skin on it. If it's a lovely skin, if you designed it and painted it well and it sounds great, it doesn't have to be revolutionary to be 
both compelling and worthwhile. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to me, for example, to look at a game like D&D, which, which has been eminently expandable for years, mm -hmm. and discover that feats and spells, despite the relationships to previous editions, but are not in the kind of endless field of expandability that there was before. Sure. I, I get the impression that it was a little bit by design in mm -hmm. the sense that D&D 5 didn't want to need a bunch of other books. Right. They've kind of moved towards a less supplement-heavy model. Yeah. Or and, it's, it's in adventures. It's not in... But, and, and, that, and, yeah. and that that's true for the third party. That that's true for everybody. Right, yeah. Which is interesting. And, and so that the system is both sturdy enough to handle expansion and weird instances and put that focus on the instance of play, the adventure, mm. but is so well stocked mm -hmm. in its spells and its monsters and its magic items and its feats right. and stuff. You, you, don't you don't necessarily need. Yeah, you don't feel like you're missing this whole realm of content. And I bring that out not necessarily as an ideal, but as much to point out that look at D&D 2, 3, 4, and 5 and how differently mm -hmm. they all are customizable and expandable while still being D&D. &D. Yeah. I think I think there's a lot to to glean from the fact that you're not necessarily giving away your identity when you make your game clearly expandable and hackable by the people at home. You in many cases are just strengthening it. If you do want to have space in your game for people to hack it, change it, drift it, yeah. make it their own, whether they turn that into their own standalone project or not, what are some other considerations that you think we should make sure we pull out of this other than uh, this idea of maybe adding handles onto things that you think are worth having them? I guess as a designer, you're in the best position to say, mm -hmm. oh, here are the things that you can hack in this game, right? So you kind of have that ability to be like, here's the really fertile ground for change. I'm going to make it easy. To, I'm going to, to, to find it and play with it. Mm -hmm. It's important to embrace that at least one degree outside of that is going to end up being hackable. Or hacked oh, yeah. if the game is hackable. That like, won't be the no, only thing. Right. And I'm, I mean that no matter how complete you think you have made your hacking guide, <laughs> yeah. right? All, mm -hmm. uh, the nature of a hacking guide is that it will encourage people to say, all right, well, what happens if I go, if I, if I climb that last fence? Mm -hmm. All right. As long as you create containers, somebody's going to want to see what's outside that container. That's great, mm -hmm. right? But so part of that means sometimes not actually trying to make everything so obviously hackable so that you're like, no, look, I, I know what happens out to the sixth ring of hackability. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about three or four rings of hackability so that at least I'm conversant in what might happen in the fifth and sixth rings. Sure. But I'm not putting a warranty on it or anything, right? I'm not I'm not encouraging it in the sense, I'm not discouraging it. Mm -hmm. I could, but I'm saying I know it will happen and I want to be able to be at least vaguely conversant <laughs> when it does. I could see some value in flagging some things like, here's a thing that I tried that did not work. <laughs> Right? Right, like, yes. We had hit points and fatigue and sleepiness, and having fatigue and sleepiness was redundant and actually, you know, was a pain in the ass, so don't don't add extra sleepiness. Just right. You can rename fatigue if, right. you, if you want, or rename hit points even and make that something else, but, you know, three currencies was too many for everything else, so those kinds of things. If part of your project is to have something that is easily modifiable and hackable, head off uh, uh, at the pass the efforts that you know will probably not fail or that's a challenge to be like or if you can make three currencies work right you know go at know. it that's great yeah, yeah love to hear it what if uh, also one of those things like hey if this category of skills skills the, the three categories really need to be balanced within one or two skills like mm. if this if one category gets has too many skills in it the whole game will fly apart there's this very specific matrix in the dark settings they have they have different social skills but they interact in a way that is very particular but it's essentially fictionally particular it's not mathematically particular so i've been thinking about this in the book which is do i call out the fact that 
it is incredibly accidentally easy to create what is essentially a useless social skill. You can't. Mm-hmm. It's not that you can have. It's not that too many is bad. It's not about the number as much as the fact that if you have one that is redundant, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And if you have one that that lets people tell when other people are lying, take it out. And in this game, yeah. yeah, and I think that's a valuable thing. I mean, I know you you need to position that with everything else that you're putting in the text, but the idea of uh, here's a thing that is in lots of games mm-hmm. that if you put into this game will make right. it harder to play. I think that's probably worth mentioning. Yeah, if you put somewhere a skill like relevant. this in the game, everybody has to take it. So sure. rather just take it out and assume everybody has it. Right. That or like, yeah, yeah, like, or, you know, this part of the game runs on the assumption that you're not going to know whether they're lying or not until right. this happens. So if you have a skill that lets you find out before X card play, right. then that is going to either be... Invalidate the subsystem right. or render the combat system happening a lot more often or whatever. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Part of it I would also think about is what are the the bounds, the shapes, the weight limits of these containers is like, mm-hmm. and this is part of what I mean about analog and digital too, fictional and, and mechanical. Imagine if I take the, the six core stats and D&D, D20, all that stuff, right? And I just give them different names, but they do basically the same thing. Does anything happen? I'm sure there are people at Wizards who know, who mm-hmm. have considered or dabbled with it in home games. I'm sure there are home game players who know better than anybody does, mm-hmm. who have dabbled with this stuff. But think about even the things that I went through six names before I ended up with, before I settled on Constitution. What happens if somebody uses one of those other names? And you don't have to write it down. You don't have to think about it, right? But these sorts of things, which is that all the steps you went through are steps that somebody else mm. might back their way through later mm-hmm. in an attempt to, and I don't mean this negatively, but to tear down your game to its chassis. Right. So they can, you know, build something either sturdier or lighter or whatever on it. I could, um, and so that mindfulness comes back again to help us. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. Please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. I am at patreon.com slash wordwill, and Nathan is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just... <laughs>